Luke 6, and as we kind of sped through a couple of verses last time, we're going to get back to verse 41, and I want to reiterate a couple of things here and kind of elaborate before we move on to the very first instance of the Lord putting into practice and into play uh, the things that we call the Sermon on the Mount, that gospel living, the Beatitudes, that most marvelous of all sermons that have ever been delivered. You know, we who have that pastoral gift and calling often look to the Sermon on the Mount uh, as, as our perfect preparation, if you will. What the Lord Jesus did was elaborate on kingdom living. And now he's going to put into play some of these things as we finish up that wonderful sermon. And in verse 41, it says, And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye? And before we pray, I'll draw your attention back to this whole concept. Because what Jesus was saying, remember this is a crowd and it is the disciples. It's both. Matthew's Gospel records more of the crowd response, and here Luke records more of the response and the view of the disciples. So very often we look past the obvious, don't we? We very often look to others before we introspectively look at ourselves. And this morning, I would say to you as we draw our attention backwards just a bit before we move on, that there is one place that you should look first. And that's at you. Because I believe if you take that position first, foremost, and always, you'll not only be more gracious to others, but you'll also possess the Lord's heart. Because He cares about you. And He cares about where you are in that circumstance and situation. And what He's going to do in your life as He allows these things to come our way. Because if you haven't figured out, if you've not walked with the Lord for very long, tests are coming your way. Amen? Trials are coming your way. Amen? Things may not work out exactly the way you had them planned. Has anyone in here ever made plans that didn't go awry? Oh, there's some of you that are perfect. Yes, mine go awry frequently. But we, we have things that happen in our life. You listen to the question first before you answer. <laughs> See what I mean? Yeah, we sometimes, we, we get thinking, and I did that intentionally, we get thinking we already know the answer, and we begin to judge the situation. We look at other people, we're examining that speck as I shared with you last time. You're looking at your brother's eye, and oh man, I can almost see the dust. And you miss the log hanging out of your own eye. And so the Lord Jesus finishes the Sermon on the Mount by reminding us, check your own heart. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this time, Lord, for this glorious season. God, as we sit here in this your house, warm and in the company of friends and brothers and sisters, and God, we're just grateful that you love us and that you've given us this opportunity to meet together. You made this little bit of time, and we pray now that this day, when you look down on us, that you'd be pleased. God, with the intent of our heart, for truly it is out of that abundance of the treasure that's in our heart that we speak and live and have our being. And so, Lord, bless us as we study. We pray in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Verse 41 here in Luke 6 as we continue onward now. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not perceive the plank that's in your own eye? That ought to be on every one of our dashboards. Amen. Just put it someplace in your house. Why do you look at the speck and you don't consider the plank? You can abbreviate it, make it as short as you want. The truth is the same. And then he goes on to say, or how can you say to your brother, brother, let me remove that speck that's in your eye because it's so glaring and obvious that I can't find it. That when you yourself do not see the plank that's in your own eye, hypocrite actor, he says. And so there's a couple of things. There's going to be that critical spirit, and then there's going to be corruption that we want to elaborate a little bit before we move on. And so he says, first remove the plank that's in your own eye, and then you can see clearly to remove the speck that's in your brother. For a good tree does not bear bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. For every tree is known by its own fruit. You are a bunch of fruits. We all are. Amen? There's going to be fruit that hangs from your tree. The question is, of what flavor will it be? As I've shared with you before, we we live in the banana belt of running springs. Right now, we still have grass. Those of you who live in Arrow Bear, I'm sorry. You do not have grass. You just have snow. It's white. So, so, yes, pray. thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. So there in the banana belt, we have our fruit trees. And if you go and look at our fruit trees right now, because they've gone into hibernation, they don't look so hot. Amen? They're kind of in that dormant state. And I want to draw your attention to the ease with which we can be critical. If you were to look at our fruit trees right now, you'd go, what do you got those things in your yard for? Amen? You can come down, come visit our fruit trees. Especially the pear tree. It's especially ugly. But those trees, when they lack fruit, you can't tell what they are. Unless you happen to be someone who's familiar with those trees, you could look at what's going on right now in the life of the Gill Fruit Farm, and you would go, boy, that's terrible. They're like lousy horticulturalists. You would judge the tree by what you see. Wrongly. Why? Because there's no fruit for you to judge it by right now. Can I share with you that that's people sometimes? You catch them in that in-between moment and you start looking at their life and you go, wow, a lot of dead branches. And we have a tendency to develop a critical spirit. There's an attitude of criticism. Maybe they're in a dry time. And I'm telling you this so you'll be kind to one another. Be kind to me. Be kind to the church. Be kind to people who are struggling. You see, we kind of make it our business to judge from time to time wrongly. We aren't waiting for the fruit. We're just looking at the sticks. And so Jesus said, For every tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they gather grapes from a bramble bush. But a good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth good fruit. 
And what Jesus was going to say and did say is the in the longer version is, you know what? Some people bring forth just a little bit of fruit, but they're still fruit trees. And some people bring forth a little more fruit, and they're still fruit trees. And then there's people that bring forth a lot of fruit, and they're fruit trees. And then there's the hope that will bring forth much or abundant fruit. And that's the goal. Not everybody is in the same place of growth. When you first plant fruit trees, it takes a year or two before there's any fruit. But they're still fruit trees. Amen? So be careful about the critical spirit. Because sometimes you may be judging a person based on what you can see and not what's really in their heart. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good fruit, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. You've all heard that old adage, you can fool some of the people some of the time, but you can't fool all the people all the time. That is a truism. It's not biblical specifically, but it's a truism. Because ultimately, you will be able to tell what's going on in somebody's life by the long-term fruit that comes forth or does not come forth. And that is where we as the body of Christ are called by the Lord to judge with righteous judgment. Judging in righteousness, grace, mercy, tenderness, care, gentleness. You get the picture? If you judge the way the Lord does, then you're going to wait for the tree to bear some fruit. You're not going to cut it down the first time it loses its leaves. Amen? Go to my house right now. You'd be tempted to cut down our pear tree. Don't do it. There'll be harm that will come you. Because we get big, huge pears on that tree. Right now you couldn't tell. Be careful of a critical spirit. Very often it's just an indication that you're ignorant of your own problems. That you aren't willing to look inside before you look outside. And something I've found in my life, when I look inside first, I am a lot more gentle with people on the outside. Because i got enough of my own stuff, and so do you. We all do. Any pastor that tells you that he's perfect and arrived, you probably shouldn't go to his church. Seriously. Somebody steps out, oh, yeah, I'm perfect. You just keep to the side in case the lightning bolt should hit at that time. You, you see, that's why Jesus calls them a hypocrite or, or an actor, as I shared with you last time. They put on the mask. They put on the good face. But eventually... You're going to see, hear, acknowledge, be witness to the fruit. And it is the fruit that determines what kind of tree it is. Good fruit comes from good trees. That's why fruits of righteousness, the fruit of the Spirit, only comes out of people who are saved. Now, bad people can do good things, can't they? But not long term. You'll find that eventually what's inside creeps outside. I kind of laugh sometimes at the shallowness of people's thinking because very often they think if they just say a few Christianisms. That's a new word for today. I just made it up. But Christianisms. Oh, praise the Lord, brother. 
You ever heard people do that? And then the next thing they do is go buy a case of beer and they're getting drunk with their friends in their front yard? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, and ultimately the actions will bear witness to it. You see, you can talk a good story for a while, but eventually the fruit will be made known. Give people time for you to know what kind of fruit comes forth from their life, and then judge with righteous judgment. If that person needs help, if you've examined your own eye, you'll be more gentle with the speck that's in there. You'll be able to say, you know, man, brother, I, I just, I'm concerned for you. Because what you're doing is not indicative of who you are in Christ. You don't slap them with the holy baseball bat the first time. Oh, I'm have a beer. You know, we have the Christian Enforcers Club, where you just kind of go around the neighborhood, get out your sinometer. You're looking for, you know, somebody that's in some form of any kind of. If you actually had one of those, it'd be going off 24-7 because it'd pick up you. Amen? How swift we are to see the smallest blemishes in other people, and we absolutely are blind to the glaring problems we ourselves have. Be careful. And I would remind you that this is about as close to sarcasm as Jesus gets in the New Testament. He's kind of saying, look, guys, are you really that well off yourself that you need to be overly critical? The second thing, notice here in verse 43, it does say that a good tree bears uh, good fruit and a bad tree bears bad fruit. The, The application is completely obvious here. Ultimately, that's what will happen. You know, when you, when you begin to plant, if you go out right now and you go into the forest and you find just, you know, get a couple of acorns or maybe you get a couple of pine nuts and you throw them in the ground, you're going to expect a pine tree or an oak tree to pop up. Amen? Come down to my house. I'll give you one of our aspen leader things that come, and you can plant it and you'll have an aspen grove just like we have. I started with one. We've got like eight jillion of them now. We have to actually cut them down. You'll get the type of thing that is planted. And in this case, talking about the fruit, you can plant all the pine trees you want. You can plant all of the oak trees you want, all the aspen trees you want. You'll never get any fruit from those trees. They're fruitless. They don't produce fruit. Ultimately, that's the type of corruption that comes into someone who doesn't live out their faith. You'll be able to tell. They don't bear any fruit. They're corrupt. They're still dead in their trespasses and sins. And so, be gracious, be kind, be careful, don't judge too quickly. It'll bear itself out in the end. And as you see those things, just simply be a fruit inspector. If there's no fruit, then simply say to that person, look, the fruit that's coming forth from your life doesn't indicate that you actually love the Lord. It indicates maybe you love yourself, and that's most of us without Jesus, amen, if not all. The fruit that's coming out of your life is carnal, it's fleshly. doesn't indicate that you know the Lord. That's why it's so important. It matters what you do, amen? Because how do people know that you're saved? It's not by what you say, it's by what you do. Because everybody can talk Christianese. Everybody can have some Christianisms. Oh, yeah, I was at the Lord's house. And then I was at the fireside. 
I was at the Lord's house. And then I went to the house of Hades down in San Bernardino. You see, it matters what you do. Ultimately, your actions will either validate your words or belie your words. In the process of of watching for that, please be patient and kind to each other. Give people the opportunity to change. Would you do that, please? Because so very often we give up on people before God gives up on people. I'm one of those. I think there were people in my life when I was in my early 30s would have looked at me and gone, "Mm, he's gone. But God had other plans. And so I sit here some 30 years later thankful for the people who simply said, you know, you probably ought to change that. Let me show you the way. We do what we do because we are what we are. Amen? Now, a fourth thing, continuing from last week, speaking about our faith as we pick up here. He says several things. First, about a confessed faith. It's kind of easy to confess faith. Amen? Doesn't most of the United States actually confess faith of some kind? And largely Christian faith. When you talk to ask people, just give you a little test. Go out this week and just ask people, are you a Christian? Don't ask them anything else. Don't ask them to define it. Don't ask them what that means to them. Just ask them if they're a Christian. I am guessing that probably 80% of most people will say yes. That's simply confessed faith. It's part of the issue. And so we're going to get a threefold look here. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things I say? Do you understand the difference here? It's real easy to say, yes, I'm a Christian. It's real easy to say, I have faith. The proof is in the pudding. It's are you doing it? And it doesn't mean sinless perfection. Can we wipe that off the map for us, please? We're not talking about being perfect in everything that happens, but we're talking about somebody who really believes that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, goodness, kindness, gentleness, meekness, and self-control. Amen? And you begin to act on those things. Interesting form of government, uh, and, and I'll just you all know it, it's called a constitutional monarchy. England has that form of government, okay? Great Britain. They are a constitutional monarchy. And it came actually from a real monarchy. The real monarchy, there was a king, and whatever the king said, it was absolute. That's what happened. But people didn't really like that, and so what they have now is this funny form of government that we look at it and we go, why do you have anybody else try to figure out what the Queen of England is for? I haven't got a clue. I know she has a lot of money. I know she's got some of the awesome, most awesome houses you'll ever find. She's got a lot of jewelry, okay? But she's about useless, amen? Sorry, but that's the way we see it as Americans. We call her a figurehead. Stay with me here for a moment. You see, originally the king or the queen had the divine right of kings. Can I remind you that you have a king? His name is Jesus. And he still possesses the divine right of king. He's Lord 
Adonai, master. But in England, now you have the parliament, and the parliament represents the people. Amen? So now what they have is they have a figurehead, in this case queen. Someday there'll be another king. But they have a figurehead who is actually the lord of the house of commons. But she does absolutely nothing because they don't listen They make all the rules in Parliament, and all they try and do is get the Lord of the Commons to agree with them. Can I tell you that a lot of Christians live their life as if they're in a constitutional monarchy? We make up our own rules as we go. We figure out what we like. We no longer give authority to the king. We take the authority back, and then we ask God, well, just to prove it. I mean, come on, we came up with this. You make up your own rules. That is simply a professed faith. If you're here this morning and you're making up your own rules about what God accepts, then Jesus is not Lord. He's a figurehead. Do you get what I'm saying? Think about it for a second, because it matters. Jesus is either Lord of all, or I would say to you, and so did D.L. Moody, that he's not Lord at all. And again, we're not talking about perfection. We're talking about direction. Do you get the difference? You see, I believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. And if I believe Jesus Christ is Lord, then I don't get to make up my rules as I go. He made up the rules. My job is to follow Him. So if I confess Him as Savior and Lord, then I live for Him. Very important part of real faith. You see... I don't want to live like I'm in a constitutional monarchy, and neither should you want to do so. Then there's the triumph of the correct faith. Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I'll show you what he's like. Notice it's in the doing, amen? It's not just in the hearing. Aren't these guys both going to hear the same story? Jesus is going to preach the Sermon on the Mount. They're listening to it. And then Jesus said, here's these guys. They heard the story. Let me give you two responses to the story. First one is this. He's like a man building his house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. That rock is the character, the nature, the Word of God. It's everything that we've had revealed to us. That's where we're supposed to build. And you know what? That's hard. It's real easy to build a house if you don't put any foundation down, okay? Just build a box, throw it on the dirt, you get the picture. Here it comes. And when the flood arose and the stream beat vehemently against the house, it could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. So Luke says there's a triumph in the correct kind of faith. You're either walking with Him or you're not. You're either following Him or you're not. We can see the wrong kind of faith. It's words only, no deeds. He says, look at this. The storm came and it beat. He uses the word translated into English vehemently. It actually is a medical term. It means to gush forth or spurt. And if you ever get cut in an artery, guess what? It's going to gush forth or spurt, and there is zip you can do about it unless you have the right cure. You've got to be doing things correctly. 
And he says it's founded on the rock. The flood's going to come. The blood vessel's going to burst. There's nothing you can do about what's that's going to happen. The test will come. But what happens is, is if you're really founded on the rock, when the tests come, you're going to withstand the test. You probably all have people in their life who withstand no tests. Amen? Every time a test comes, they fail. Every time something pops up in their life, they wander off into the wilderness. Every single occasion that there is for their faith to be tested, it's an abysmal failure. Do you realize that in Christ, built on the rock, you're supposed to have triumph, victory? Then he says, the tragedy of people who will fool themselves. Because there in James 1, it says, being doers of the word, amen? Not hearers only, deceiving yourself. That's the counterfeit faith that a lot of people have. And I'm pointing fingers at no one. And I'm looking first at myself. Jeff, how does your faith express itself in this world? How does your faith express itself in this world? Can people tell by how you live your life, what you do, not just what you say, what you do, can they tell that you're a child of God? Because I can tell you how to spot a counterfeit. They say one thing, do another. Notice what he says. But he who heard and did nothing. Notice the did nothing part. The first guy heard it, and he said, I'm digging deep. Amen? The first guy heard it, I'm digging deep. The second guy heard the exact same words. He didn't hear a different sermon. He heard the same sermon. He heard the same words. And he said, constitutional monarchy, going to make up my own rules. I'm going with politically correct and situationally ethical. Everybody else is doing it that way, so I'm doing it that way too. He did nothing. You get the point? It's important you understand this. Because there are a lot of people, I believe, on this earth who think they're Christians, and they're going to hear depart, for I've never known you. Because they are constitutional monarchists. They make up their own rules. They do whatever they want. And if you look at their life, there's not a smidgen of fruit. That's not to judge them. That's to say what's on the inside makes it to the outside, and you'll be able to tell. Because when the test comes, notice this. Built his house on the earth without a foundation, and against which the stream beat same word, mercilessly, vehemently, without any ability to stop it, and immediately, do you underline that word please? You know why? Because there was no chance for it to stand. It was built on the wrong stuff. If you ever watch some of the pictures of flooding in the in the Midwest when the Mississippi or the Missouri ri- River rises up, when it hits a trailer park, it's pretty sad. You know why? They're attached to zip, not a nothing. They are boxes that are laid down on a ribbon footing, and they're just sitting there, and when the waters rise, about two seconds after they get up about a foot on the walls, boink, downstream they go. No foundation. Attached to nothing. 
and they float really well. And they go wherever the stream blows. The water's going that way, the house goes that way. That's how you can tell what's going on in somebody's life. When the world goes that way and they go that way, that's somebody who's not built on the rock. But when somebody's built on the rock and the world goes that way and Jesus goes that way, they go that way against the tide. Because they're built on the rock. Do not build your eternity on shifting sand. Don't do it. It's a bad gamble. And now for the first story that Jesus tells once He preaches these words. We come to Luke chapter 7. You see, Jesus is now going to apply all these things. And it's a beautiful picture. Whereas Luke gives us the most abbreviated accounts of both the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, he gives us the most detailed account of the application. So it's not about in the multitude of words. It's about the application, folks. It's about being a doer. Several things, the first here of our Master's works. And he's going to travel back to Capernaum. And this is a beautiful picture. And as I've shared with you, and one of the reasons I gave you the pictures of this area, these are short journeys from the Mount of Beatitudes to Capernaum only a couple of miles. From there it would be only a couple more miles over to the mouth of the River Jordan as it flows into this, this lake. It's not a sea. It's 12 miles long. It's about 6 miles wide. It's not a sea at all. It's a, it's a good-sized lake. But it's not that large. But he's going to go back to Capernaum. And it was there in Capernaum uh, that the Lord ministered to so many already. And we've already seen him. It was there. Uh, he's going to heal the nobleman's son. It's there he's going to... He, remember, he cast the demon out of that demon-possessed man. Peter's mother-in-law is healed. There's the paralytic who's been already healed. The woman who has a constant hemorrhage. It was in Capernaum, the city that was really Jesus' home on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And so Jesus is going to go there. This is what Jesus would have done. Can I draw your attention to Jesus made opportunity where he lived. He wasn't looking for the next big thing. He was looking for the next thing, whatever it was in life. He wasn't looking for the supernatural thing that would influence the most people. He was looking to touch people where he lived. It's an important lesson for us to learn. Because sometimes, we, well, you know, I want to be this, or I want, I want to be a pastor, I want to, you know, play in the worship, I want to do this. How about touching people right where you're at? While you're on your walk from some place that you were to some place that you're going to go, be used of God. That's all Jesus is doing here. And it says, And when he had ended all these things, that would be the Sermon on the Mount, in the audience of the people, he entered into Capernaum. So he makes about a probably maybe an hour's journey. If he walked slowly, it would be slightly downhill, down towards the lake. And a certain centurion's servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. And so when he heard about Jesus, he sent the elders of the Jews to him and pleaded with him to come 
and heal his servant. Now, if you know anything about the Roman army, the Roman army was formed into legions in this region of the world. Uh, the Roman historian Josephus, who happened to also be a Jew, recorded that Caesar Augustus had 28 legions. A legion was 6,000 men. They were divided up into a, a group of 30. And then they would be divided further into groups of 100. And those groups of 100, from which this man got his name, he was a centurion, a commander or a master over a 100. He was a professional soldier. And in fact, the common pay for a centurion at that time was 1,000 denarii a year. That would be roughly 10 times what the average person would earn. You get a, you get a, a denarii or denarii were the smallest currency of that time. It was a day's wages. So the centurion was very influential, very powerful. And in fact, it's likely that as far as the Roman government is concerned, he was the most influential and most powerful person in Capernaum, this small town on the edge of the Sea of Galilee, where the north winds would whip down from Mount Hermon and blow. He set up a place to live, living comfortably. And in fact, if you travel there today, it is very likely that the synagogue that this centurion built for his friends, the Jews, is the one that stands today. And so here we have this man. We, we come into a brief moment in time in his life. And so he sends out his, some of these elders of the Jews. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying, for the one who should do this for him is deserving. Or it says in the New King James, for the one whom he should do this thing was deserving. For he loves our nation. The centurion wasn't perfect. And the centurion worked for the Roman government. The centurion was a professional soldier. So there are a lot of things about the centurion that the Jews could have looked at and said, "Yeah, I'm not helping him. There's a subtlety here. He's built our synagogue. And then Jesus went to them. And when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends out to him. Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy. Tremendous picture of us. Because... There's none righteous, not one. Amen? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Amen? For the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked, and who can know it? Amen? For we who were once dead in our trespasses and sins, He hath made alive. Amen? We're not worthy. And this man knew it. that you should enter under my roof, and therefore I did not even think myself worthy to come to you. He said, the only reason I sent my servants is I, I really didn't think I was worthy to come myself. I figured maybe you'd listen to my servants just out of compassion because I'm a Roman. Can I tell you that the eyes of the Lord go true and fro on this earth, and He's looking for those who love Him, and He's always looking for the lost sheep. Amen? The lost coin. Amen. The, the Lord's not simply the God of America. 
The Lord is Lord of all. But I, I know that if you say a word, my servant will be healed. He expresses faith. Think on this for a moment. This is a Roman, pagan Roman centurion who's been around some Jewish people and he's endeared himself to them and they to him. Operative word. There is a relationship. Family of God, you will lead very few people to Christ if you are unwilling to develop relationships with people who don't know Jesus. We need to get out more. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in this world. You need not fear being around people who don't know the Lord. Because you have the truth. The truth is in you. And in this case, that which was internal is making it to that which is external. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers unto me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and the other, come, and he comes. And to this my servant, do this, and he does it. You see what he's really saying is, I have a certain amount of power in the world, but I believe you have a different kind of power. That's where everybody has to get. This centurion apparently got there rather quickly. There's a Roman soldier that we look at this morning, and I just want to draw a few things as we come to a close. Basically, Jesus never even goes to his house. Do you get it? There's nothing here that says Jesus actually made it to his house. You know why? Because the Lord always acts on the faithful prayer. He doesn't have to come to your house. When we pray for people to be healed and we anoint them with oil, there's nothing special about that oil. There's nothing special about my prayer that you can't pray the same. We're privileged to do that, and we do it in response to the Word because the Word says to do it. But it is Christ who heals. Jesus went there. didn't matter. Jesus wasn't put off by the fact that this guy was a Roman centurion, that this man was a servant, a slave. So shared with you before, very often servants, slaves during that time, were actually very well treated. They became part of the household. They could have possessions. Often, they, especially in this case, the Roman centurion servant was probably doing better than many of the people in the town. Now, you would think that Jesus would go, Oh, Roman! Because that's how we kind of think sometimes, don't we? When you pass by that person on the street corner who obviously is disadvantaged and you are pretty sure that they got there themselves. Amen? Oh, he's a crackhead. You know, she's always been like that. If you're willing to admit it, you're going to see that we have some prejudices in our lives that the Lord didn't have. He just simply went where he was called. If there was an opportunity to minister, he ministered. And so the centurion, knowing his own merit, says, I'm not worthy. That's you. That's me. That's everybody. Nobody that you minister to is ever going to be less worthy than you. Do you get it? 
Nobody that you minister to is ever going to be less worthy than you, because you're not worthy either. And neither am I. I am not worthy of the things that God's done in my life. Sometimes when I look at you all, I see what God's doing in this church, in this community. I, I look at my own family and how God's blessed us and, and prospered us and given us so much. I just go, Lord, I'm not worthy. And to that he says, that's true, Jeff. But that's how much I love you. Don't forget how much the Lord loves the lost. It's easy to figure out he loved John, amen? The disciple whom Jesus loved. As I shared with you, he loved Judas. Christ's heart was broken over Judas. And so the Savior comes to the sufferer. Notice a couple little subtleties here. And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at them, turned around, and said to the crowd that follows, I say to you. Now remember, the crowd that's following is the crowd who heard the Sermon on the Mount. The crowd that's following contains the disciples. The crowd that's following are the people who willingly went to hear the word of the Lord. The crowd that's following are people who have their churchy folks. Okay? They're church folks. And here they are behind Jesus. And he turns around and he looks. And he says, I say to you, none of you have the kind of faith this guy has. Because you heard me and you believe. He hasn't even heard and he believes. Not even one in all of Israel. The Jewish authorities said about the centurion, He is worthy. The centurion says, I'm not worthy. And Jesus says, It's in acknowledging the unworthiness that you're actually worthy. And family of God, that's where we need to live. When you acknowledge your own unworthiness and you realize that He has declared you worthy anyway, you get a real soft heart towards people. And so He says, And they that were sent there in verse 10, returning to the house, found the servant whole that had been sick. Another medical word. Completely as if nothing had ever happened. How did that happen? It wasn't because he went to a crusade. It wasn't because they, you know, got a bunch of medication and ministered to him. The faith of a pagan servant. The faith of a pagan centurion was met by a suffering Christ who said, all I'm looking for is somebody who has faith. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it's a gift. That gift was handed to the man who was sick. That gift was handed to the centurion's servant. And that gift to this day is handed to any who will believe. Jesus makes it clear. It's not about where you go. 
It's not about who you know. It's about whether you've recognized that you're unworthy and that you're in need of grace. And that in that recognition of your own unworthiness, you ask of him who freely gives. That's it. Beautiful picture. Very wonderful picture of how the Lord takes and puts into practice immediately what he had just taught the disciples, what he had just taught the multitudes. He said, let me show you how this works. Because this guy doesn't deserve it. Don't judge him. Bless him. This guy didn't even hear it. Don't judge him. Tell him. May we be found doing that, living it, blessing people who desperately need Him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this time this morning. and Lord, the glory of Your Word. God, we thank You for the faith of the centurion. Lord, this sick servant. Lord, may we have that simple childlike faith. And Lord, may we be doers of Your Word, not just hearers. Lord, as this crowd followed Jesus, they saw Him get busy doing exactly what He said He would do. Father, we thank You for that example. We pray that we would model it. Lord, we love You. We bless You. We praise You. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.